there's nothing that's going to save the Russian economy. Um, there's no miracle um, in the offing for Putin. His economy is going to face an historic contraction in 2022, and it's probably going to be a quite dire economic situation in Russia for the foreseeable future. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast and Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. Today on the podcast, we'll be discussing Western sanctions on the Russian Federation following the country's invasion of Ukraine. We'll go over the new sanctions, how Russia has attempted to evade them, and what else could the United States and its allies do to squeeze the Russian economy. To help answer these questions, we're joined today by Eddie Fishman. Mr. Fishman is an adjunct professor of international and public affairs at Columbia School of International and Public Affairs and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's an expert on economic statecraft and we're delighted to have him join us today. With that, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you very much for joining us today, Mr. Fishman. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on, Franz. Well, this is not the first time that the West has imposed sanctions on Russia. Uh, we did so again, or we did so first in 2014, after Russia's annexation of Crimea. What did these 2014 sanctions that we imposed then entail? Sure. Um, I think that's a good place to start. Uh, you know, I was involved in putting together the sanctions in 2014, uh, both within the U.S. government and also in diplomacy with the European Union and the G7. I think the biggest difference between 2014 and today is that in 2014, the general thrust of U.S. policy toward Russia was still to try to integrate Russia into the global economy. That really had been the strategic aim of U.S. policy from Gorbachev onward. So basically for 25 years, culminating in 2014. Um, the second thing is that the Crimea annexation happened very swiftly and took the West by surprise. So. Um, As a result, we didn't have you know, a Russia sanctions team in place in February of 2014. We didn't have a menu of sanctions um, on the table ready to roll out as soon as Putin um, launched the Crimea operation. So we were we were sort of working behind you know behind events in 2014. Uh, so I think what happened in 2014 is it took us a while to get our act together to build out sanctions options to build the diplomatic muscle with the G7 and the European Union to actually coordinate um, alliance-based sanctions, which hadn't been done before uh, prior to 2014. Um, and the sanctions as a result that we put in place back then were relatively modest and measured. Um, we did not impose full blocking sanctions on any major Russian bank or company in 2014. Instead, we focused on cutting off Russian state-owned enterprises from global debt markets in particular. Uh, we focused on three sectors in Russia's economy, the banking sector, the energy sector, and the defense sector. Um, and we really created a whole new model for sanctions in 2014 um, that was really aimed at you know, applying pressure to large economic actors. Now, I think the other important thing to note is that you know, prior to 2014, the targets of US sanctions had really been small fish in the global economy. Um, and so I think the imposition of U.S. and European sanctions was seen as relatively costless or cost-free. You know, it was um, you know, targeting North Korea or even Iran um, didn't have major 
macroeconomic implications. You know, on the other hand, targeting entities like Sparebank or Rosneft um, could have um, pretty significant macroeconomic implications. Of course, this was top of mind in, in 2014, which you know we're still in the afterglow of the global financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis. So um, the, the short answer is that in 2014, we imposed more modest and measured sanctions. Um, and, and we were really just sort of gradually uh, shifting the aircraft carrier that is US foreign policy on Russia from one that for 25 years had been about integration to one that was more about pressure and more about um, you know, an adversarial type relationship. And so I think that you know, 2014 was a pivot point. And what we're seeing now, I think, is the culmination of that policy that, that really was born in 2014. And what effect did these 2014 sanctions have on the Russian economy? And, and what did we and our European partners learn from this initial sanction regime? So the interesting thing, Franz, is that in 2014, as I said, we imposed these more modest and measured sanctions, right? We didn't impose any full blocking sanctions. And, and just by comparison, you know, if you look at Iran, every single major Iranian bank and company, even the Central Bank of Iran was under full blocking sanctions. So, you know, I, I like to say if the Iran sanctions were a 10 out of 10, the 2014 Russia sanctions were more like a two out of 10 in intensity. And still, even though these sanctions were relatively measured, the Russian economy was sent into a tailspin. Uh, the Russian economy contracted significantly, um, as much as two uh, two and a half to four percent of GDP. Um, and beyond that, you know, the ruble collapsed. Uh, the Russian central bank had to hike interest rates um, to, to very high levels, um, and you really did see quite a bit of um, you know economic dislocation within Russia. So I think one of the things that was interesting is that even though the sanctions were relatively light touch, the impact on Russia was fairly dramatic. Um, mind you, this was coupled in the second half of 2014 by a very steep decline in global oil prices. So I think the impact of sanctions was um, amplified by the fall in global oil prices. So it's hard to sort of disaggregate the effects of the two. I think one of our big learnings though, was that we could target large, macroeconomically significant actors without um, really upsetting the global economy um, or, or certainly the US or European economy in any significant way. I think the fears that some folks had in 2014 about economic contagion or you know, potentially unleashing financial crisis again in Europe, um, it just didn't come to pass. And so I think many of us who were involved in 2014 um, this time around in uh, 2021 and 2022, felt a lot more confident with imposing really strong sanctions on Russia. Um, and I think a big reason you have seen um, really significant sanctions in the last month or so, including sanctions on the Central Bank of Russia, which is, is almost certainly the largest uh, entity ever sanctioned by the United States, um, is because of that lesson in 2014 that we think I think many of us who are involved think we should have gone harder and we could have gone harder in 2014. And so that was in 2014. Uh, now on February 24th of this year, Russia invaded Ukraine and the West, uh, the United States and, the United and our European allies imposed a lot more sanctions on the country. 
could you briefly describe to our listeners these sanctions that the world imposed on Russia after the invasion? Sure. So, you know, a lot really happened in the first 10 days after the invasion. Um, after Putin gave his speech, his war speech, in which he recognized the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics um, and claimed that he wanted to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, uh, whatever that means, uh, you know, the West started by imposing sanctions on a handful of Russian banks, uh, the largest of which uh, was VTB, the second largest bank in Russia. And that was a significant Rubicon for the United States to cross because VTB was the first uh, major state-owned Russian bank to be um, blocked fully, right? So full blocking sanctions entail um, a complete transaction ban and asset freeze. And it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to operate in the global financial system if you're under U.S. full blocking sanctions. So I thought that was a significant Rubicon to cross. Um, but things really escalated over the, the first weekend of the war when, you know, it became very clear that Russia had maximalist military aims in Ukraine and was targeting civilians. And really the worst case scenario had materialized. And what happened over that weekend is that, you know, European opinion really dramatically changed. And you, you saw um, the political possibility of really dramatic sanctions become um, become viable, right? And so you had political support in Europe um, to really ratchet up the pressure to a very high level on Russia's economy. Um, and so I think what we saw then was, you know, the months of preparation that the U.S. and the EU had done leading up to late February, early March were very valuable because as soon as the political leaders had the appetite for tough measures, they had those tough measures on the table ready to go. And what you saw was sanctions that immobilized the Central Bank of Russia's assets. You know, Central Bank of Russia has about $640 billion of assets. Um, as I said before, I think it's almost certainly the largest economic actor ever targeted by sanctions. Um, and I think Putin had assumed that those assets were going to be his and at his disposal. Um, and I think the best evidence of that is, you know, more than two thirds of those assets were denominated in Western currencies, you know, dollar, euro, and, and pound. And as a result, the US and Europe were able to immobilize the vast majority of those assets at the stroke of a pen. Uh, and that's really the most significant sanction that has been imposed on Russia to date. There are many others. So, um, you know, there have been debt and equity sanctions on most of the important sectors in Russia's economy. So these are an expansion of the sanctions that I mentioned before that we kind of pioneered in 2014. In 2014, we, we focused on, you know, oil, uh, finance, and defense. Um, the sanctions have been expanded to, you know, gas with Gazprom, um, diamonds, Al Rosa, Russian railways, Sofcom Float, which is a Russian shipping company. Um, so they've been expanded quite dramatically um, in, in the recent weeks. Uh, the other thing is that there have been export controls. So... The U.S. has teamed up with not only the G7, but other allies in Europe and Asia to impose multilateral export controls that are intended to cut off Russia from really almost all high-tech inputs. And so I think that could really have a dramatic effect on Russia's ability to innovate and, and really produce high-technology goods over time. Um, 
And then finally, of course, there have been a whole array of personal sanctions. So these are asset freezes targeted at individuals. Um, of course, Putin himself and Foreign Minister Lavrov have been targeted, um, but also um, many of the wealthiest Russians, the so-called oligarchs and Siloviki, who are the closest political advisors to Putin, um, have been targeted. And just today, you know, we're speaking on Thursday, March 24th, um, the United States has imposed sanctions on all of the members of the Russian Duma who've been supporting uh, the war in Ukraine. So it's a, it's a long list of sanctions. Um, um, and that said, we are still only at about a seven or eight out of 10 in intensity. We aren't at that 10 out of 10 yet. There's still quite a bit of headroom for the US and Europe on sanctions if they choose to go that direction. Mr. Fishman, before we dive deeper into the sanctions that remain on the table, uh, you know, what would make that seven turn into an eight or nine, I would love to ask you um, what Russia did to prepare for these sanctions, because um, it seemed that uh, they had been building up their central central bank reserves. They knew that these sanctions could be on the table before the invasion started. Uh, so what did they do to try and, and absorb some of that impact? Sure. So in 2014, the largest Russian state-owned enterprises had very significant foreign debts, dollar-denominated, euro-denominated debts, right? And the main reason that we decided to impose debt sanctions specifically on Sparebank and Rosneft and Rostec, you know, which is the Lockheed Martin of Russia, is that we thought it would make it impossible for them to pay down their debts um, absent state support. And uh, we were proven right. You know, in the months and years after those sanctions were imposed, uh, Russia did. Um, get to a quite a low level of hard currency reserve. Russian state had to come in and effectively bail out these companies. So the first thing that Russia did in the ensuing years was it reduced its foreign debt burden. And Russia doesn't have nearly as large foreign debts now as it had in 2014. Um, the most important thing Russia did, though, is to accumulate this so-called war chest that Putin thought he had at his disposal. This is the very large central bank reserves that eclipse 600 billion, as well as um, significant um, foreign exchange that exists within the National Wealth Fund as well, which is sort of the, the Kremlin's rainy day fund. And I think the assumption was that if the West tried to impose even broader debt sanctions or even full blocking sanctions on major Russian banks, that Um, these hard currency reserves could be used to prop up the ruble and bail out any Russian company that was facing sanctions. I think what Putin didn't bargain for and wasn't prepared for, frankly, was that the West would actually go ahead and sanction the central bank, the National Wealth Fund, and the Russian finance ministry. Um, those were steps that almost definitely Putin did not expect to happen, perhaps because he doubted uh, U.S. and European resolve perhaps because his advisors um, don't tell him the truth and just tell him what he wants to hear. I think there's a lot of evidence that information flows to Putin are quite spotty. So um, the short answer is that Putin did try to build up Fortress Russia, but Fortress Russia came down at the stroke of a pen. It didn't take much to bring down 
fortress Russia. Uh, and so I think all of the preparation that Putin did was pretty much for naught. And, you know, Russia right now is heading toward um, really a, a, a mammoth economic and financial crisis. The um, GDP is likely to contract at least 15% this year, which would be three times worse than the 98 financial crisis that Russia uh, infamously went through and that brought Putin to power. So um, clearly Fortress Russia has not had the policy impact that Putin thought it would have. The final point I want to make on this is, you know, why was Putin able to do this? You know, why was Putin able to accumulate uh, so much foreign exchange reserves? I think the answer is that there was this interregnum uh, sort of between the Obama years and the Biden years, also known as the four years of the Trump administration, in which pressure on Russia really stagnated, didn't increase at all. And so you know, Putin had a four-year period to try to really recover and bring his economy back from the sanctions that we imposed in 2014 and 15. And I think he, he clearly made good use of that time, but it still wasn't enough to protect him from sanctions in 2022. So we have talked about the full blocking sanctions. Um, we've talked about the central bank, uh, the, the sanctions on the central bank assets. We've talked about the debt equity sanctions, uh, the expansion of those debt equity sanctions, and also the export controls. Uh, you also mentioned that you consider what we have done now about a seven out of ten in the sanction scale, in the sanction strength scale. So now I want to delve a little deeper into what could make that seven in an eight or a nine or a ten. So. To that end, um, what sanctions have we not imposed yet, and why haven't we imposed them? Let's start with the low-hanging fruit. So, as I said, uh, the West has focused full-blocking sanctions on Russia's largest banks. And VTB, for instance, the second largest bank of Russia, has been targeted with full-blocking sanction, uh, sanctions and cut off from the SWIFT messaging service. Uh, however, Sparebank, the largest bank in Russia, has not uh, come under full blocking sanctions or been cut off from SWIFT. Uh, the same applies to Gazprom Bank, which is the third largest bank in Russia. So even in the banking sector itself, there's quite a bit of room for escalation um, if the West decides to go in that direction. Um, to go to sort of the next level of, of low, relatively low hanging fruit, um, there haven't really been any major state owned enterprises outside of the banking sector that have come under full blocking sanctions. So as I mentioned, the debt and equity sanctions um, have been expanded to include companies like Gazprom and Alrosa, Russian Railways, Ross Telecom. They already include companies like Rosneft and Rostec, but these are just debt and equity sanctions. They are not full blocking sanctions. Uh, so a very you know, straightforward way to increase pressure would be to start imposing full blocking sanctions on non-financial Russian state-owned enterprises. But really, friends, the final frontier of sanctions, and the one that I think is most significant, is applying the Iran playbook to Russia's oil exports. It is a global campaign to reduce the world's purchases of Russian oil. Uh, oil is the lifeblood of Russia's economy. It makes up almost half of export revenues and nearly 40% of Russia's budget. So think about that. 40% of its budget is just selling oil, right? So there's a reason why, you know, uh, the Kremlin 
feels like it doesn't have to answer to people's wishes because it doesn't actually rely that much on tax revenues. It's really an oil dependent economy. The US has had a domestic oil embargo in place now for uh, over a week, but we haven't seen a comparable move by the EU. And certainly we've not seen the threat of secondary sanctions against other buyers of Russian oil, such as China or India. And we did um, execute a global campaign to reduce Russia's or Iran's oil exports between 2012 and, and 2015 that was extremely successful. So we have a playbook for how this can be done. We haven't done it yet. And I think that's honestly a weak spot in the West sanctions policy and one that I hope can be rectified pretty soon. Um, something that's very interesting to me is that countries that many would describe as U.S. partners in the past, such as Israel, the Gulf states, Turkey, and India, have not moved to sanction Russia in the same way that the, same, that the West has reacted. Do you know why these countries have either been slow to impose sanctions or not impose them at all? The honest truth, friends, is that when you look at sanctions historically, the norm is for the U.S. to act alone, right? Sanctions, when they're not passed through the U.N. Security Council, and they almost are never passed through the U.N. Security Council when it involves really significant economic sanctions, um, they've really been a tool of unilateral U.S. economic statecraft. Um, I think the exception to that was in 2014 when we worked with the European Union and the G7 on the original Russia sanctions. That's really the one historical example uh, before 2022 Russia where we have seen alliance-based sanctions. So um, I think the, the first thing to state is that the norm is for the US to be acting alone. And in fact, this time, the type of global coalition that the United States has been able to build, including, of course, the European Union, the UK, um, Canada, Australia, you know, the members of the G7, uh, you know, so including even some Asian allies who, you know, perhaps don't feel the, th the threat of Russia as acutely, um, is really unprecedented and something that, you know, we should praise uh, the Biden administration for building. In terms of why some of the partners and allies that you mentioned, including Israel and Turkey, um, are outside of the sanctions coalition, I think the, the short answer is that these countries see some benefit in playing both sides and, and retaining you know, some relationship with Putin's Russia. I think it's a terrible mistake. I think it would be wise for these countries to join the sanctions coalition, but it doesn't surprise me that they're not part of it. I think the real interesting question will be what happens in the coming months? Because so far, even though these sanctions have escalated quickly, we're still really early in the sanctions campaign. It's just a month old, right? So today's the 24th, so it's exactly a month old. Let's see what happens in the months ahead if the US and Europe do go to really crack down on sanctions evasion, if they do opt for secondary sanctions. I think if Turkish companies or Israeli companies are confronted with a stark choice of whether they want to keep doing business with, with Russia or lose access to the US um, and European economies, I think that um, a lot of those companies will just get on board with sanctions regardless of what their government does. I think that's going to be an interesting area to watch in the coming months. And the reason I asked that was exactly because of this topic of sanctions evasion. We we saw today that Roman Abramovich, for example, was using Turkey to 
um, housed a lot of his assets that were um, in in sanctioned countries. For and that's just one example. And you also brought up the example of the secondary sanctions. But what else is Russia? What else are we seeing Russia do to evade these current sanctions? Even if the sanctions have just lasted a month, do we already know what they're trying to do to evade them? And and how do you see the West closing these lo- these loopholes? I think it's too early to say with any definitive um, answer on how Russia plans to evade sanctions. What I will say is that financial sanctions, which are really the uh, pointy edge of the spear of the sanctions campaign, are very, very hard to evade in any large and meaningful way. Um, And that's because just by virtue of the systemic significance of the U.S. financial system, many transactions, even if they don't use U.S. dollars, are touching the US in some way or another. And so I wouldn't expect financial sanctions to be evaded in a major way. It's not a huge concern that I have. The bigger concern I have is what happens if Russia continues selling oil or even increases its its sales of oil and other commodities to governments outside of the sanctions coalition, obviously including uh, places like China. That would be very significant. could, of course, help um, soften the blow of sanctions to a certain extent. But I, I, I want to caveat, it's just a certain extent, right? There, there's nothing that's going to save the Russian economy. Um, there's no miracle um, in the offing for Putin. His economy is going to face a historic contraction in 2022, and it's probably going to be a quite dire economic situation in Russia for the foreseeable future. So I do expect that there to be some sanctions evasion on the margins. I don't think it'll be terribly significant. I think the major area, though, to watch is Russia's oil sales. And right now, like I said, the U.S. has a domestic embargo, but the European Union is still buying pretty significant quantities of Russian oil. And so I think, um, you know, until the Europeans themselves stop buying Russian oil, it's hard to expect China or other countries to stop buying Russian oil. Thank you for that. And now I want to to to, to start looking towards the future. Um, one of the things that a lot of people are, have been commenting about is this challenge to the to the U.S. financial system that would presumably come from from China and the yuan. Um, to that point, um, how likely do you see this development? Um, how see how likely do you see this developing happening, and also what impact could it have on U.S. economic statecraft if if there is a viable challenge to the U.S. dollar dominance in the financial system? There is obviously an incentive for countries that fear U.S. sanctions to try to create an alternative financial system. That incentive has existed now for more than a decade, so it's not new. Um, it's it's been been out there. And certainly, China, Russia, and others have been trying. So um, I would only imagine that the current uh, use of U.S. and European sanctions will increase that incentive to build alternatives to the Western financial system. But I want to give you a historical analogy. The Arab oil embargo in the early 1970s was really devastating for the US economy, the European economy. Um, It hit American and European directly in their wallets and pocketbooks. This was something that was felt viscerally 
and it was a major political issue. Uh, and I think that was an example, an early example of weaponized interdependence being levied against the United States. That was in the early 70s. And today, in 2022, we're still reliant on Arab oil. Why? There's no good alternative, unfortunately. I wish there was. I think building an alternative to the U.S. financial system will be even harder than forging an alternative to oil. So that incentive has existed uh, uh, to build an alternative financial infrastructure. I think it's going to be extremely hard, and I don't expect it to happen anytime soon. I think for China to truly globalize the renminbi in a way where it could even approach the dollar significance, it would entail a drastic reconfiguration of Chinese political economy, including the removal of capital controls and the liberalization of China's economy. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So um, I agree that the incentive to build alternative financial infrastructures is quite strong, certainly amongst states that uh, are apt to challenge the international order the way that Putin has. Um, but I don't think they'll be successful in doing it. And if, finally, Mr. Fishman, at the time of recording on March 24th, um, 2022, almost a month has passed since Russia invaded Ukraine. To wrap up the episode, what are a couple of things that have surprised you this last month with regards to Western sanctions, the Russian economy, etc.? I have to be honest. The thing that surprises me the most is just how dramatically European opinion shifted in the first week of this war. I thought the West and President Biden in particular was wise to try to use the threat of sanctions as a deterrent, uh, to try to warn Russia of swift and severe consequences should Putin decide to invade Ukraine. I thought that was the right policy. Unfortunately, deterrence failed. And there are obviously a few reasons why deterrence could have failed, including that Putin could never be deterred. But I actually don't believe that. I think deterrence failed because Putin underestimated the West. He didn't expect the West to actually impose devastating sanctions on his economy. He overestimated the fortress that we discussed, the fortress Russia economy that he thought he had built up in the last several years. So I think Putin miscalculated the West's resolve. And myself, as an interested observer and analyst, somebody who cares deeply about this policy, I did believe that the US was ready to impose pretty swift and severe consequences. But I was skeptical that Europe would be on board for the harshest measures. I thought the Biden administration was ultimately going to have to take really strong unilateral sanctions measures and basically be satisfied with symbolic unity with the European Union as opposed to real unity. But what we saw, like I said, over the first weekend of the war was a major shift in European opinion, which opened up political space for the US and Europe to act together to sanction the Central Bank of Russia, the most significant sanctions action in modern history. That surprised me and it surprised Putin. And all we can do at this point is hope that this pressure that's building on Russia's economy, alongside, of course, the heroic resistance that the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people 
have put up against Russia's unprovoked invasion can change Putin's calculus and end this horrible war in Ukraine. Well, with that, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast, Mr. Fishman. My pleasure.